The Church at Ross Bridge is a bridge to belonging, believing, and becoming in Jesus Christ. We hope you enjoyed this message and visit our website at rossbridge.church. Good morning, church. It is so good to be with you on this third Sunday of Advent. The great Clive Staples Lewis wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. Also wrote a little book called Miracles, and in it he makes this really profound statement. The central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this, or exhibits this, or results from this. We are an Easter people. We gather to worship the risen Christ on Sundays because he triumphed over death, but had there not been a Christmas, there would not have been an Easter. That statement in C.S. Lewis's quote, that everything about Christian belief either anticipates this, results from, or arises from, is reflected in the spirit of this Advent season. This year, we're taking a look at the Christmas story, not at the major characters. All of us, regardless of how religious we are, can look at a nativity and pick out Mary, Joseph, the baby, the shepherds, the animals, and the angels. We know the basic Christmas story. Instead, this series picks up on the subtle details because in those details, the writers are giving us clues that God is up to something much more profound than the birth of an ordinary prophet. This week, once again, we're turning to the Gospel of Luke. We found another clue in the Christmas story And I want to follow what we find from that clue together this morning. In Luke chapter 2, we're given his telling of Jesus' birth and the celebration of that birth. In chapter 2, he says, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea unto the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and lineage of David. Now, he's just telling the story here. Jesus will be born there. They will wrap him in swaddling clothes, lay him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. But then he continues in the story and continues to drop the same detail. In verse 8, And there were in the same country shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And lo, the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David, a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And it came to pass, as the angels who were gone from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go even unto Bethlehem and see this thing which has come to pass, which the Lord hath made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. I don't know if you caught through the bold words the term city of David or Bethlehem. A total of four times the two words are mentioned in this text. It's a short text. All those verses are part of the same story. Why would he say three or four times that Jesus is born in the city of David in Bethlehem? I understand it once. It gives us a geographical location for these events. But 
three times in the same really extended paragraph? It's unusual. It must have special significance for Luke. You know, the city of Bethlehem that you visit today just looks like any other city in Israel. It's a combination of businesses, you know, some apartment buildings, parks, and schools. This is an actual picture of the city of Bethlehem and a beautiful sunset with a purple sky. It's about five miles southwest of the city of Jerusalem, and it's an ancient city. And this map of first century Israel, you know, as I've used a map once before in my sermons, um, in the area of Galilee, up around the Sea of Galilee, is where Jesus spent the majority of not only his growing up years from birth to 30, but also most of his ministry for those three years. Except for the last few weeks, he goes down into Judea and to Judah, where the city of Jerusalem is. Well, the city of Bethlehem is just kind of on the outskirts of the city of Jerusalem. It was a more rural village outside of the major city. I went there a number of years ago with some members of our church. My son Henry was with me. He's going to be angry with me for sharing this picture of him outside the shepherd's fields. But um, he was like a different person back then. But this is where we believe that these, these sheep were raised. I mean, there are small caves in the hillside where the shepherds would have had shelter from the rain or extreme elements. They would have made fires there and just had a very mundane job of making sure that these sheep were watered, fed, and protected against any danger or theft. Now, we spent the afternoon there at the shepherd's fields. We went into a little chapel and sang um, Joy to the World and Angels We Have Heard on High. The acoustics were beautiful in this little stone chapel. It was made for singing together. But then there in downtown Bethlehem, we were feeling a little bit sluggish because it was in the afternoon. And so we stopped at a well-known coffee shop in Bethlehem. This is the coffee shop. You can stop for a hot cup of Stars and Bucks coffee. The finest coffee beans, perfectly roasted, and stealing intellectual property at the same time. Back to the sermon. The significance of this little town of Bethlehem that we sing about can be understood, but we have to turn back the pages of our Bible just a little bit. There's a book in the Old Testament. It's one of the minor prophets. We have some major prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel. They wrote big, long books. Prophet Micah only has seven chapters. He lived about 800 years before Jesus was born. This is a painting of one artist's painting of the prophet Micah. He has a Latin inscription above his head. About 800 years before Jesus was born, Micah lived alongside the prophets of Hosea and Amos and Isaiah. And in order to understand the significance of the time, the political events in Micah's age of living, you have to go to this map. We've been studying in our Through the Bible Bible study over the last eight weeks that Israel in the year 975 before Jesus was born, Israel was divided into a northern kingdom they called Israel and a southern kingdom called Judah. They were no longer a unified nation. Ten of the tribes lived in the north, two of them lived in the south. And the prophet Micah comes, this is about 150 years after the division of the kingdom, which had happened under Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And the prophet Micah comes, like all prophets do, with a difficult word. It's a harsh word. He brings a word of warning. He's from a little town, a little village, just a few miles from where Bethlehem is. But he comes with a word that God is going to allow the Assyrian Empire, which is to the northeast of this image, to come down in a number of years and to overtake the northern kingdom of Israel. They will be conquered. 
And then he says, oh, southern kingdom, you're not going to be without consequences too. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to take over the southern kingdom of Judah. It's a harsh and scary word from Micah. And he's doing this because he believes God's Spirit is giving him this message of warning. I mean, chapter 3, this is an example. But as for me, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, to declare to Israel his sin. As the Holy Spirit guided Micah, I envision him getting up in the morning, making a cup of coffee, setting aside that time in his schedule to be alone with God and to pray. Maybe he had a copy, a scroll of the Old Testament law with all of God's instructions for Israel on one side. And then I think that he might have had a map of the northern and southern kingdoms on his other side because he begins making a list in his book of different cities all around northern and southern Israel that have broken God's laws by mistreating people. Some of the religious leaders at this time had not just started worshiping other gods and practicing idolatry. They had also overlooked and become wealthy on the backs of the most vulnerable people in Israel. And the prophet Micah says, if you read in the scriptures that God gave you, you're to care for one another. And God cares about your, how you're treating His children. And so Micah lists the cities. Samaria, Jerusalem, Gath, Beth, Ophrah, Shafir, Zanan, Beth, Ezel, Meroth, Lachish, Merishah. And because Israel and northern kingdom, northern kingdom of Israel and southern kingdom of Judah has been corrupt in these particular places, he says, look, there are going to be consequences because you've ignored God's teaching. It's a scary thing. But the prophets never bring a word of warning without also bringing a little word of hope. And so in chapter 2, he gives them a word of hope about what will happen on the other side of the Assyrian conquest in the north and the Babylonian conquest in the south. He says in chapter 2, I will surely gather all of you, Jacob. I will surely bring together the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in its pasture. The place will throng with people. The one who breaks open the way will go up before them. They will break through the gate and go out. Their king will pass through before them, the Lord at their head. And Israel begins to hold on to this promise that on the other side of hardship, there can be hope. Well, there's one more city that Micah mentions in his seven chapters. And it's a city not that is forewarned of destruction, but a city from which will be born hope. It's the one that we read responsively in Micah 5, verses 2 and 4. But you, Bethlehem, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come one for me, one who will be ruler over all Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. Now, any knowledgeable, worshiping Israeli would have heard this from Micah chapter 5 and immediately sat up straight because of that geographical reference to that other city. They had heard the list of all the ones that had gotten everything wrong, but out of Bethlehem there will come our hope. Well, they immediately would associate that geographical reference to Bethlehem 
with the most legendary political figure in their history, King David. Because in the book of 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 12, they knew David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse who was from Bethlehem in Judah. He was larger than life. And the association that God's hope would come from Bethlehem, surely this person must be like King David. You know the sculpture that Michelangelo completed around the turn of the 16th century. You can visit it. It's in Italy in a different museum. It's actually about 17 feet tall. We're sharing it only from the waist up because we're a family-friendly church. (laughs) But this is Michelangelo's David. And he was legendary. Think about it. Every Israelite would have known he was the king who'd lived just about 200 years prior, who had the guts, the chutzpah, to stand up against that Philistine giant Goliath when all of the other Israelites, including their king, were backing down from him. And he stood toe-to-toe and stood on the promises of God and he defeated him. And Israel, the, the warriors, they were so inspired and given courage by that, they immediately ran down through the valley and overcame the Philistines. And David later when he was king, when the Philistines had charge of Jerusalem, he would drive them out of Jerusalem and establish the center of worship for the Lord. He established their capital city there. Not only was he a great warrior, but he was a warrior poet. Most paintings that you see of David, he's holding a harp. He was the author of most of their hymn book, which we call the 150 Psalms. He was a man of many talents, not perfect, but a man of many talents and great might and a one who is described as having a heart like God's. If he's the Savior in their history, and there's another Savior in their future coming from Bethlehem, you can bet they're looking for the exact same outcome from this promised Savior like they experienced from their previous Savior, David. But in the first century when Jesus is born, and at 30 years old is baptized, tempted in the wilderness, and then begins a three-year tour of ministry, he doesn't really look like David much. He doesn't sound like the kind of Savior that David was. Jesus doesn't encourage His followers to gather up their weapons and in a violent rebellion attack and overthrow the Romans. He says, blessed are the peacemakers. Jesus didn't try to subdue His enemies. He demonstrated and encouraged His followers to bless their enemies. Turn the other cheek. When Jesus finally went down to Jerusalem in Luke's Gospel and He's entering on Palm Sunday, He doesn't show up in a chariot. He doesn't have a detachment of soldiers leading the way. There's not a, you know, a 21-gun salute to hail His entry. He's on the back of a lowly farm animal, a donkey. And when He makes His way toward the temple, He walks in there and He's so distraught because His Father's house has turned into a den of thieves, He says, that it's the only outburst of anger that we see in Jesus. And He goes to the tables and He flips over the furniture. He's made a whip of rope and he drives out the animals, but even his moments of anger were directed at furniture and animals rather than the people who were responsible for those choices. Later in the gospel, later that week actually, after he enters Jerusalem, when he's arrested in Gethsemane, and Peter, impulsive, passionate Peter, draws a sword and probably trying to behead one of the people who comes to, to arrest Jesus, cuts off the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant, 
And Jesus stops him and says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then lifts up Malchus', Malchus ear and puts it back on him and heals him in that moment. Jesus does not seem to come on a mission of conquest the way that everybody in the first century would have wanted Him. Doesn't God know what they need? The Romans are in control. We want them gone. We're your promised people. We're your chosen people. And Jesus doesn't come with that kind of mission of conquest. He comes with a mission of blessing. And that painting of Micah, by the way, did you notice how his face is kind of downcast? Look at this rendering of Micah. I only showed the top portion initially. This is from a mid-15th century German painting where Micah is looking down upon the Virgin Mary who is receiving the power of the Holy Spirit symbolized by the dove which will create an, an amazing conception, a miraculous conception within her that she will bring the Christ child into the world. The Latin inscription above his head on that banner is a quote from what we read earlier in the service. Out of you, Bethlehem, shall come forth unto me he that is to be a ruler in Israel. Such a humble beginning. And then, I mean this, of course, respectfully, but Jesus would have been an incredible disappointment. No other way to look at it. An incredible disappointment for all the people that were expecting out of Bethlehem a second King David. So there must be some mistake in this story. There has to be an error in why Luke includes that detail. I mean, here's what I mean. Why go to the extent of naming three to four times in the story, Jesus comes from the city of David. He will be born in Bethlehem. You should go worship Him. He's just been born in Bethlehem. Why go to the extent of emphasizing that if there's really no parallel or comparison to be made from the greatest political and military hero in Israel's history and in Jesus called of Nazareth. So I began to look. I realized I don't think it's a mistake. I think Luke is trying to tell us that out of Bethlehem will come God's Messiah. But He brings a different kind of power he brings a different kind of hope than the kind that they and we think we need. Because the term Bethlehem isn't only associated with David, it has a meaning. And there's an Old Testament Hebrew meaning to the word, and then there was a contemporary Arabic meaning of the word. And in the first century, they would have associated the name of Bethlehem with both of those phrases. The name Bethlehem City of David means house of bread or in the Arabic house of meat. House of bread, house of meat. And 20 chapters later in Luke's Gospel, when Jesus would prepare the Passover meal with His disciples, He very intentionally says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. It would be from that meal that Jesus would interpret Himself and say, this is My body and the bread that is broken for you. This is My blood and the cup that has been shed for you. Jesus was from Bethlehem, the house of bread and the house of meat. 
It's a totally different understanding of the mission of Christ in the world than that that most of Israel wanted him to have in the world. But by his grace, the shedding of his blood, the breaking of his body, that promise has now been opened up beyond Israel to you and to me. So it made me wonder, Jesus, born in the city of David, born in Bethlehem, didn't live there very long. You can read in Matthew's Gospel that by the time he's around two years old, King Herod is looking to assassinate him. And his parents have to escape by night to flee down to Egypt to save his life. And then when he comes back, they go to Nazareth to stay away from King Herod, to live incognito in the backwoods where no one would know where they are. Jesus doesn't grow up in Bethlehem, but because Joseph and Mary both come from Bethlehem, I have to think that when they went back down to visit extended family like Elizabeth and Zechariah who lived just a few miles away, I have to just think that it was like them telling Jesus about His birth story. Walking through the streets of the small village, finally rounding the corner. There it is, Jesus. You see the one with the red door? Right back there around the back. If you go through that gate, around back there's a little cave, and that's where you were delivered. That's where you were born. We got to hold you for the first time. And we wrapped you up, and we placed you in a manger, and later... Uh, the, that's where the shepherds came. We've told you about those shepherds. They had lambs with them. And this actually, you remember, Joseph, this is where the Persian visitors came to, the ones that brought those expensive gifts, Jesus, that gold, that frankincense, that myrrh. Maybe they had to use some of those to fund their escape to Egypt and then coming back home. We don't know. Maybe. Jesus, do you see that tree over there? It's gone now. But right before you were born, Joseph was so excited, he hung a tire in that tree. And he was looking forward to you growing up and being strong enough for him to push you in it. The tire is gone, but you can still see a remnant of the piece of rope that's wrapped around that limb up there. And you know, Joseph, I wonder, you know, I wanted more than anything to be able to take my grandmother's dresser with us when we went to Egypt, but we, didn't, we weren't able to carry it down and we had to leave it with the house. I wonder if the new owners kept it. Do you think we could knock on the door? Okay, never mind, I won't ask him. And maybe in the midst of all those conversations, just maybe, little Jesus, three, four, five, six, maybe said, Mama, what is that sound? What are those animals? I've heard them all morning ever since we got here. What kind of animals are those? And maybe she said, well, son, you remember when we came in, all those green hillsides, this whole town, is built around raising sheep because this is the place where they supply the sacrifices for when we go to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. This is where the lambs are raised in preparation for that worship of God. Luke says four times, Jesus comes from the city of David, Bethlehem, house of bread and house of meat. He's telling you and me something about the higher purposes of God's salvation in the world. And my encouragement, my invitation to you today is this, is to believe that later in his life, he will fulfill what the prophet Isaiah did, who was a contemporary of Micah, who wrote in chapter 53, verse 7, he was led like a lamb 
to the slaughter. A story so vast, a story so beautiful, is worth your consideration today about whether or not it may be true. Let's pray. God, thank you for writing out the story of your salvation and the life of Israel. And Lord, today, would you help us to wrap our minds around the the beauty and the promise of the incarnation of your Son. We learn, God, as we read the story that there were no accidents along the way that were not without your redemption. Every little detail has a way of pointing back to you and the beauty of your plan and the hope and the depths of your salvation. Thank you for that. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. The Church at Ross Bridge is located in Birmingham, Alabama and helps people find abundant life in Jesus Christ. 